One of the most encouraging things in the world to me is when I talk with someone who's going through some kind of a terrible difficulty or trial or struggle in life, and I can tell just through the things that they're saying and the way that they say it and the look in their eyes and their body language that they are doing everything that they can to patiently trust God right in the middle of it. And I think it's so encouraging to me because it's something in my own life that I have such a hard time doing. Uh, When I'm going through a difficulty or pain or some kind of uh, experience that just seems to go on a long time and and there doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope for this particular thing in in sight, I, I found that it's so very hard to wait and to be patient and to be hopeful and to be prayerful. Those kinds of seasons in life um, can be such a test of faith, and it can be so easy, as we all know, during those times to grow discouraged. And this is the subject that I want to think a bit about this morning, because in our passage today, that is exactly where Elijah is at. He is discouraged. This is a man who is totally demoralized and is ready to give up even on life itself. But what we're going to find about this wonderful passage is that God is going to powerfully speak into his situation. He's going to speak into his life and and he's going to begin to work on this discouragement that Elijah is feeling. And and I think this passage can really teach us something about our own uh, seasons of discouragement that we face in life as well. Now, Elijah's discouragement has a very particular source. Uh, He's very discouraged with his people, uh, his homeland, his country, his nation, which was Israel. Now, most of us in the room, we can relate to being discouraged with our country, can't we? But it's important to know that there's a real specific reason for Elijah, and, and that has to do with the fact that Israel was a very, very unique nation because Israel had a very special arrangement with God. And actually, in order to understand this passage, I think you've got to really understand the relationship that God had with the nation of Israel. And so what I want to do first today is I want to kind of travel back in times from First Kings over here all the way back to the beginning, the formation of the nation of Israel. And if you, learn, if you know a little bit about that, it can really help us to understand what Elijah's issues are over here. And, and so if you'll bear with me for a few minutes for just a quick history lesson, I really hope and, and think that it will be useful to you later, okay? So... Moving back from 1 Kings to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God forms the people of Israel into a nation. And he has to do this first by freeing them from slavery in Egypt. Uh, You may remember that he raises up a great leader named Moses who guides them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And the next thing that happens is they come to a mountain that is called Sinai. And it's here, as they're all gathered at Mount Sinai, that God does something very unique. He offers Israel a deal. And during this, the scene is absolutely spectacular. Uh, God's presence descends on the mountain in this dark cloud, and there's this huge commotion fire and smoke and thunder and earthquakes and all the people are afraid of God. But Moses, he climbs to the top of the mountain where he actually meets with God 
for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, he eats no food at all. He fasts completely. And on the top of that mountain, God asks Moses to offer to the people a special arrangement or agreement or to use the word that the Bible uses, a covenant. Now, God has made covenants with other people before. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Noah. But this particular covenant is different because this one, unlike the others, has conditions attached. God tells them that if they want to enter into this covenant, if they decide to do that, then the following will happen. Uh, If they obey the rules of the covenant, which God was going to give them, uh, this was called the law, it was like the constitution that the nation of Israel was to live by, all of this law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. God says if they obey the rules of the covenant, then God will bless them and protect them and prosper them in every way you can possibly imagine. Uh, Israel would be a light to all the nations so that as they obeyed God and followed the covenant, God would extraordinarily bless them. And this blessing would attract the attention of all the other nations and, and be like a testimony of just how great God is and how good he is and how he cares and loves and takes care of the needs of his people. But, say the terms of the covenant, If they don't obey the law, then, according to the agreement, God would bring upon Israel curses and life, instead of being a wonderful blessing, almost beyond their imagination, it would become miserable and difficult and painful. And so what God does is he offers his law to be the constitution for the nation. And in Deuteronomy 28, he spells out exactly the blessings and cursings that will come if the people of Israel either choose to walk within the law or depart from it. But all of this is only if they agree to the terms. And guess what? They do. We see it right in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 19, verse 8, Moses shares the basic terms of the covenant with the people, and they accept. It says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then later, uh, a smaller group of about 70 elders and leaders uh, go with Moses together up the mountain And they reaffirm the covenant again in Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so now God and Israel have a special arrangement, and we call it now the Old Testament. Now, of course, it is only going to be just a few days later until Israel has already broken the covenant, right? I mean, Moses comes down off the mountain, and there they are worshiping a golden calf. And Moses starts to realize what he's gotten himself into, and he becomes very discouraged. Uh, Moses 
uh, discouragement continues. And so God decides to show Moses something. Moses, God invites to climb back up the mountain, and Moses hides in the cleft of a rock, the book of Exodus says. It's like a, a little cave. And there, God reveals himself personally to Moses. He shows himself uh, only his back, not his face, because God says, no one can see my face and live. Well, now, what I want to do is I want to leave here. Okay, we're done with this. We're going to fast forward through time all the way to the book of First Kings. Now, it's years and years later, and the nation of Israel over all of this time has, for the most part, been wandering from God. And so, at this point, where we find ourselves is in a great struggle between, on one side, King Elijah, we've been talking about him, excuse me, the prophet Elijah, we've been talking about him for the last few weeks, and Elijah has been warning King Ahab and Israel to come back to the things that they, would, they had promised that they would do way back then when they agreed to the covenant with Moses. On the other side of this great struggle, you have the king of Israel. He was a very wicked man whose name was Ahab, and he had a hateful wife whose name was Jezebel, who had 450 prophets and had led the nation in the worship of Baal. And last week in chapter 18, what we saw was we saw something spectacular happen. It seemed like this struggle between Elijah and between Ahab had finally been won and that Elijah had uh, uh, gained the victory, certainly. Uh, Elijah had challenged Jezebel's 450 prophets to a duel to see whose God would respond to an offering with fire. And it was absolutely no contest, right? It was an embarrassment if you read that story. God sends this huge blaze of fire down from heaven and it engulfs the offering and he easily wins the day. And when the the people saw it, the best thing happens. They fall on their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they take the prophets of Baal and they seize them and put them to death. And it looks like it's going to be one of the greatest revivals in all the history of Israel. A complete success. And then everybody wakes up the next morning, right? And we get to the passage that we read today and we realize that in spite of everything that has happened in chapter 18, everything's going to fall apart in chapter 19. Uh, King Ahab, who was there for that big event, he saw the fire. He returns home to report everything that has happened to his wife Jezebel. And without so much as even a second thought, without even pausing a couple of minutes to consider what it might mean, her face darkens, she gets angry, and she makes a promise that before the next day, Elijah will be dead. And Elijah realizes something, I think, at this moment. Elijah realizes that in spite of everything that has happened, Ahab, still the same Ahab. Jezebel, she's still the same Jezebel. Israel is still the same Israel. God sent a ball of fire from heaven, and it changed nothing. And so what does he do? He just hightails it out of there. He gets out. He escapes into the wilderness. 
and he climbs underneath a, bloom, a broom tree that, that, that gave its shade, and he goes to sleep. Now, if you've been with us for this series on Elijah, you know that he has been such a brave, such a fierce, determined person. I mean, he stood up to every challenge up until this point, and yet now what you find is, is kind of this dark, gloomy cloud has settled over his soul. And so much so that he actually says that he wants to end his life. He wants God to end his life. And in verse 4, he says, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Actually, if you read a little bit about this passage, you'll find that um, Elijah gets a lot of bad press over this particular point in his life. Uh, there's a lot of people that find him just very easily discouraged and, and feel like he's being sort of wimpy and whiny. But I think that he's just genuinely, very deeply grieving two things. First of all, I think Elijah's heart is broken for his people. It is broken for Israel. Israel had seen God's power in the most miraculous and outstanding way just yesterday. And yet still their hearts were so hard that all they cared about was Baal. Elijah is crushed that God's people have rejected him. And second of all, I think he's so depressed because he feels like he himself personally has failed. Notice he says, I am no different from my father's. And what he means is that just as the previous prophets, they failed in their work to, to bring any lasting good to Israel, he, he had failed in his work too. In spite of his best efforts, nothing at all has changed. And I think he feels like he's let God down. I think he feels like his life has been a, a failure and that the purpose that he had, he did not succeed in. And he just feels like dying. I don't think he's being whiny. I just think he's being human. I mean, we all struggle with those same things at time too, don't we? Now, what we're going to see in this passage that follows is we're going to see, and this is part of the reasons why I don't think he's being whiny, because what we're going to see is we're going to see God start to deal with Elijah very tenderly, and he begins doing that in the second part of verse 5, if you look there. He goes down and he lays, goes to sleep underneath the broom tree. And it says in verses 5 and 6, And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. That bread always sounded kind of tasty to me. And that water always seemed like it would taste really, really good. You know, I was talking to somebody last week um, after the service, and they were reading ahead in our series. And, and this woman said, you know, it is just like God to do this for Elijah. And, and I said, well, what do you mean? She was referring to this section. And I said, she said, you know, when you're really down, when you're really struggling and discouraged, sometimes the, the things that you need are just a little bit of sleep and a really good meal. 
she said, there's, there's just a certain comfort in, in those things. And, and she saw this as God just really taking care, first of all, of Elijah's physical needs, doing something that would show him that he cared and that he was there uh, to comfort him. And God does that. And then God's going to do something different. God isn't just going to deal with his physical needs, but he's also going to begin to speak into this specific discouragement that Elijah has been facing. And this next section is really, really important to the text. So I want you to pay real close attention to verses 7 through 10. It says, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, what's going on here? Well, first of all, Elijah is given some special food. You might think of it like an angelic power bar. And this food allows him to travel without eating anything else for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. So he essentially fasts from food for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the strength of that food that God gave him, he's sent to a mountain called Horeb. Now, one thing you may not know about this mountain, Horeb, is that it also goes by another name. Does anybody want to guess what the other name is for this mountain? Sinai, that's right. Sinai has two names, but it's all the same mountain. So Moses, excuse me, Elijah goes to Sinai where he pitches camp, he stays in a cave. Or another way you might say it is a cleft in the rock where he is going to personally experience the presence of God. Does anything about this First Kings passage feel familiar? You're starting to have a little bit of uh, deja vu. Well, you're supposed to. Because this whole passage is kind of an echo of the very same thing that Moses experienced years ago. All of the similarities that are in the two passages, the one that we read in Exodus and the one that we're going to read here in, in First Kings, are, are not there by accident. But God has placed these similarities, sovereignty, for a very important reason. God is trying to show Elijah and to show us something. He's trying to make a connection from the Mount Sinai experience in Exodus to Elijah's Mount Sinai experience in 1 Kings. Let's think about that a little bit because this is really interesting. Elijah arrives to the top of Mount Sinai, and God asks him a question. 
He says to Elijah, what are you doing here? Now that is a very good question, right? Because God has actually called him there. And so when I read this, it makes me want to know the same thing. What on earth is he doing there? And Elijah responds, and here's what he says. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. There's that word again. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So what is going on here? Well, I'd like to make a case that there's something incredibly important happening here. And that this is a very weighty, very significant part of the Bible in the Old Testament. What's happening here, I believe, is that Elijah is making a charge. He's making a a formal accusation against Israel. And so God uh, asks this question of Elijah like a courtroom judge who invites the accuser to state the problem for the record. What are you doing here? What is it that you've come to say? What would you like to see? What's happening? There's a certain formality to this whole interaction that God and Elijah will have in this passage. Now let's take a step back just for a second and kind of, kind of look at the big picture. Okay, let's go back here for a minute. Uh, God, back in Exodus, called Moses to the top of Mount Sinai to establish a covenant with Israel, right? And does it make sense now that years later, God calls Elijah back to the top of of Mount Sinai to charge that they've broken the covenant. That's why I think this passage is so important because Moses and Elijah's experiences on Mount Sinai are kind of like two bookends. One of them started with such hope and promise and excitement and the other one ends with such failure and disappointment and sorrow. One declares the establishment of the covenant and the other declares that Israel has totally failed to do the things that they promised. I mean, this passage is a heartbreaking one. Most of us here can probably feel that heartbreak. It was especially true for Elijah. But it was true for God too because what this was showing is that God's covenant with Israel had been a total failure. And Elijah is saying to God, I want you to act on that. I want you to do something. I want you not to be silent. And God is indeed going to act. He's going to act in this passage, but God responds by doing something that's very godlike. It's something that only he would do. And that is that he reveals something about himself to Elijah first. And we find that in a very, very mysterious passage. If you look again here at, at your Bible in 1 Kings to, chapter, to verses 11 through 13, it says, And God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So here you have Elijah standing on the mountain, and God reveals his presence to Elijah just like he did to Moses years and years ago. Let's think about this a little bit more closely. So first what you've got is you've got this incredibly powerful hurricane-force wind that crashes into the mountain, and it shatters rocks and stones all over the place. You can't imagine probably what the noise would have been like to have heard that. And that just settles down, and all of a sudden there's an earthquake, and uh, it it begins and, and begins to shatter everything. And I'm sure Elijah had to hold on just to steady himself. And then finally, <coughs> excuse me, finally a great fire, and, and there's all of this chaos and uproar all over the mountain. Now, where have we seen something like that before? Oh, yeah, back at Sinai, right, with Moses in the Exodus. You could almost get whiplash going back and forth in this passage, right? But this time, now, in spite of all the commotion and all the clamor and all the noise, something is different. God isn't there. He was there at Sinai here. But now, in all the thunder and lightning, he's not there anymore. God is doing something different. And finally, the Bible says, there is just this great calm. And Elijah experiences the faintest, quietest, almost imperceptible sound. It's a hush. It's the lowest of whispers. Your Bible might even translate it a thin silence. And when Elijah hears this near silence, this passage tells us he is moved to the core. Because in this whisper, he has felt the presence of God. And he has perceived that in this silence, God himself is there. And so, knowing that no one can see God and live, he pulls his cloak down over his face. And we've still got to ask the question, what is God trying to teach him? And we can make a lot of guesses about that, but it's still unclear. I think God is going to clear that up for us in a minute. So we're going to come back to this next what you'll see is that God invites Elijah once again to state his case before him, to bring his accusation before his throne. And what God does is he decides to act. He decides to do something. And he tells Elijah exactly what he's going to do in the next set of verses. Uh, Elijah again uh, shares his... his, um, Uh, request in, in verse 14. And in verse 15, it says, and the Lord responds to him. He says to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. 
And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. That is God's response. And uh, let me ask you this question. Are you satisfied with that? Would Elijah have been satisfied with that? It's kind of a confusing response, isn't it? It seems sort of strange. It feels kind of anticlimactic. Elijah probably said to himself, what? That's it? You brought me all the way out to Sinai, 40 days and 40 nights. You've asked me to share with you what's, what's been burdening me. I tell you this, and all you want to do is anoint a couple of kings and tell me to be happy because there's 7,000 good people who are still left? You could have sent fire again from heaven, God. This is all you've got? Wouldn't you feel that way? I know I would. But here's something interesting that we know that Elijah never could have known at the time. And that that is this, that these anointings of these two kings by God was going to set into motion judgment against Ahab and Jezebel. But it is a judgment that would take years to unfold. Uh, This guy, Haziel, would become the king over Syria. And and this is actually quite a thing for God to do. God has never sent one of his prophets before in the Old Testament to anoint a foreign leader. But he does that here now. He kind of breaks that pattern. And in the course of time, this king of Syria would wage a terrible war against Ahab and against Israel. And he would absolutely tear into them. He would be like a thorn in their side. And this other man, Jehu, who would become the king over Israel, Jehu would be the one who would eventually end up executing Jezebel. And he would go on to kill all 70 of Ahab's sons, which would utterly wipe out his name from the face of the earth. God is going to use these two kings to judge, but he's not going to do it immediately. And then, finally, in verse 18, God corrects Elijah on one thing that he had said that actually wasn't true after all. God says, you aren't the only one who's still left who loves me, Elijah. God says, I am going to keep for myself a remnant. There are 7,000 faithful people in Israel, and I'm with them. He says, they may not be the ones who hold the power or the influence, or the authority, or the prestige, but I can work through weak things just as much as I can work through strong things. And maybe this is the lesson of the wind, and the earthquake, and the fire, and the whisper. Maybe this is what God's trying to teach him. What you have here is God responding to Elijah's accusations, not immediately with lightning and fire from heaven, but you have God uh, responding through the, the patient, 
unfolding of human history. And God just does two simple things. He judges some people and he blesses some other people. Nothing flashy, nothing extravagant, but just as effective. What I think God is showing Elijah here is that he doesn't always choose to work in the spectacular. That God is just as present in his whisper as he is in his thunder. That God is just as as active in his subtle declarations as he is in his obvious ones. God is always at work, he's trying to teach Elijah, even in the thinnest silence. He, He works quietly too, sometimes imperceptibly. And God is saying to Elijah, don't be so discouraged with what you see in front of you now. Well, it's really interesting. I think you can make an argument that the, the, the rest of the Old Testament, as it unfolds, God begins to work more subtly. God begins to work more under the radar. And, and what you find as you read through the Old Testament and into the New Testament is that God almost quietly with hints and whispers here and there is directing history slowly and patiently to a single point, And that is to the cross. The old covenant has failed. And so God is going to quietly move into history to replace it with a new one. And God's replacement in the new covenant is so different from the start of the old covenant. Uh, Jesus himself would come into the earth not with a great thunder and, and lightning and smoke, but he comes so quietly and humbly. He's born in a manger. And, and when Jesus, at the end of his ministry, he, he brings uh, into initiation The new covenant, he doesn't do it on the top of a great mountain with thunder and lightning and smoke, but he does it during a quiet meal in an upper room with a few of his closest friends, his disciples, as they eat some bread that is broken for them and as they drink from a cup which is poured out for them. And in some ways, the initiation of the new covenant is like a whisper but it's a whisper that changed everything in the universe. The the cross, the the death of our Savior, was not in the least bit flashy. But God used it to change everything. Where would I be without it? Someone once said, don't mistake divine silence for divine inactivity. Don't mistake divine silence for divine inactivity. And I think that God was trying to teach Elijah this. And I think he recorded it here in 1 Kings chapter 19 so that we could learn it too because we now tend to make the same mistakes that Elijah did then. You know, there's a lot of really discouraging things happening in the world. I don't have to tell you that. Every day in the news, it feels like there's a new one. And that's the world as a whole. There's also really discouraging things happening in life around us with 
our friends and with the people that we care about, our loved ones, and, and even in our own lives. Life can so easily become so discouraging, and it is truly so hard sometimes to wait on God, to be patient and to stay hopeful and to be prayerful. But I really believe that this story shows us that God knows exactly what he's doing. And that God is purposefully taking the world someplace. There will be a conclusion and God will get us there. He may not always do it the way that we think that he should. But just because he isn't shouting, we shouldn't think that he isn't speaking. Because what we find, especially with the cross, is that even in a whisper, God's voice thunders. We ought to really be glad for that. We ought to really thank him for that. And we ought to really work to put our trust and our hearts in his hand. Let's pray. Father, I, I want to thank you for this passage, and I want to thank you that you recorded it for us, that you gave it to us. This wasn't just an event that happened that we don't know about, but you, you left it here in your word for us so that we could be helped by it. And uh, as I've looked at it this week, I, I really have been. Thank you for uh, the patience that you show us and the kindness and, and grace that you give us with our discouragement. We thank you that just like Elijah, that you bring us periods of comfort and rest. But we also thank you that you give us a hope that is so much beyond what we just see ahead of us. And so we pray that as a result of this passage and by your spirit, that you might help those of us who are discouraged and struggling to raise our eyes to you. And that we might be reminded, even in those times when you seem silent or distant or when, when things just aren't working out the way that it seems like obviously they should, that you are still speaking, that you are still active, that you are still good, and that you are working out all things according to your great purpose. Help us to have that perspective, we pray. Amen.